Isaiah chapter 12. The Lord is my strength and my song. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make his deeds known among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Living the Proverbs Day by Day for July 10th. Today's lesson from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. This devotion was entitled, The Battle Has Been Won. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will support you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Christians have every reason to live courageously. After all, the ultimate battle has already been won on the cross at Calvary. But even dedicated followers of Christ may find their courage tested by the inevitable disappointments and fears that visit the lives of believers and non-believers alike. When you find yourself worried about the challenges of today or the uncertainties of tomorrow, you must ask yourself whether or not you are ready to place your concerns and your life in God's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving hands. If the answer to that question is yes, as it should be, then you can draw courage today from the source of strength that never fails, your Heavenly Father. My Utmost for His Highest for July 10th, and this devotion is entitled, The Spiritually Lazy Saint. Uh-oh. But our, uh, our, our verse comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We are all capable of being spiritually lazy saints. We want to stay off the rough roads of life, and our primary objective is to secure a peaceful retreat from the world. The ideas put forth in these verses from Hebrews chapter 10 are those of stirring up one another 
and of keeping ourselves together. Both of these require initiative, our willingness to take the first step toward Christ realization, not the initiative toward self-realization. To live a distant, withdrawn, and secluded life is diametrically opposed to spirituality as Jesus Christ taught it. The true test of our spirituality occurs when we come up against injustice, degradation, ingratitude, and turmoil, all of which have the tendency to make us spiritually lazy, guilty as charged. While being tested, we want to use prayer and Bible reading for the purpose of finding a quiet retreat. Guilty as charged again. We use God only for the sake of getting peace and joy. We seek only our enjoyment of Jesus Christ, not a true realization of him. This is the first step in the wrong direction. All these things we are seeking are simply effects, and yet we try to make them causes. Yes, I think it is right, Peter said, to stir you up by reminding you, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it is a most disturbing thing to be hit squarely in the stomach by someone being used of God to stir us up, someone who is full of spiritual activity. Simple active work and spiritual activity are not the same thing. Active work can actually be the counterfeit of spiritual activity. The real danger in spiritual laziness is that we do not want to be stirred up. All we want to hear about is a spiritual retirement from the world. Yet Jesus Christ never encourages the idea of retirement. He says, go and tell my brethren. Matthew 28, verse 10. Streams in the Desert for July 10th. Our scripture comes from Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 6. I called him, but he did not answer. Once the Lord has given us great faith, he has been known to test it with long delays. He has allowed his servants' voices to echo in their ears as if their prayers were rebounding from a contemptuous sky. Believers have knocked at the heavenly gate, but it has remained immovable as though its hinges had rusted. And like Jeremiah, they have cried, You have covered yourself with the cloud so that no prayer can get through. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 44. True saints of God have endured lengthy times of patient waiting with no reply not because their prayers were prayed without intensity, nor because God did not accept their pleas. They were required to wait because it pleased him who is sovereign and who gives according to his good purpose. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. And if it pleases him to cause our patience to be exercised, should he not do as he desires with his own? No prayer is ever lost, or any prayer ever breathed in vain. There is no such thing as prayer unanswered or unnoticed by God.
and some things we see as refusals or denials, but they are simply delays. Christ sometimes delays his help so he may test our faith, faith and our face too. <laughs> if we get scowls on our faces, they are tested. Uh, but to test our faith and energize our prayers. Our boat may be tossed by the waves while he continues to sleep, but he will awake before it sinks. He sleeps, but he never oversleeps, for he is never too late. Be still, sad soul. Lift up no passionate cry, but spread the desert of your being bare to the full searching of the all-seeing eye. Wait, and through dark misgiving, deep despair, God will come down in pity and fill the dry, dead place with light and life and spring-like air. now move into what the Bible says about part six, about what the Bible says about seeking God. And our scripture comes from Romans chapter one, verses 22 through 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Does this not sound like a heaping helping uh, of a slice of Exodus 32? These passages teach us a principle. We cannot imagine God in terms of what he has materially created because what he has made is not God. In the process that ends in idolatry, the first thing a person loses is his sense of awe, his reverential fear toward the majesty of God. This is what Paul means when he, when he says they became futile in their thoughts. The result is that the person's former high standards concerning virtually everything begin to slip, and this corruption in turn gives birth to perversion. Romans chapter 1 verses 26 through 32 provides a partial list of these perversions. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What an indictment! Additionally, the moral slippage resulting from misconceptions about God affects dress. Immodesty becomes common. Language becomes filthy. And coarse, the arts, entertainment become base. Family life, the home becomes divided. And the entire culture degenerates. Romans chapter 1 verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1 provides a brief overview of the horrific effects of mankind turning its collective back on the Creator God. Verse 28 from the Revised English Bible reads, Thus they be they because thus because they have not seen fit to acknowledge God, he has given them up to their own depraved way of thinking. The King James Version says a reprobate mind, and this leads them to break all rules of conduct. The term reprobate mind indicates a mind devoid of proper judgment. When God's judgment against Adam and Eve went into effect, mankind's choices in daily life became based almost entirely upon human experience. This passage shows specifically what happens when people leave the source of true values out of their lives. They become like a pinball, wandering aimlessly and bouncing from one jolting experience to another. Perhaps humanity can be described as a bull in a china shop, breaking things at every turn and causing an incredible amount of destruction and pain without ever being able to compose itself to create a lasting, peaceful lifestyle. Put another way, people become like animals in a jungle, competing viciously to survive and to eat before they are eaten. Paul exposes the consequences of a purely secular mind. When God is removed or removes himself, mankind not only loses godliness, but also true humanity. This deg degradation occurs because man is not seeking God. Christ, however, did not seek his own will. And he who sent, he, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. That was uh, from John chapter 8, verse 29. Excuse me about the, the mix-up there. 
This is what made the difference between Christ and the rest of mankind, resulting in his judgment being completely unclouded. This leaves us with the question, how can a person discern truth in moral and spiritual areas if he already has the wrong source and is not consistently seeking the right one? He cannot. John chapter 7 verses 15 through 17 and 24 offers a biblical example of this truth. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The people could not perceive their murderous intentions. It is hoped that this confrontation helps us to see the vast gap in understanding between the people whose main source for values was human experience and Jesus, whose source was God. Those confronting Jesus did not realize that they were being misled by their idolatry as Paul reveals in Romans 1. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and, 11, 10 and 11. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is a powerful statement. There is none who seeks after God. Wait a minute. Are not people all over the world seeking after a God to worship? Yet God says there is none that is seeking after him. They are not seeking God in the way the Bible instructs. The people of this world are so deceived by Satan that they do not even know what to look for. God has to reveal himself. Then they can seek him. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks after God. This is astounding. How can Paul and David before him make such all-encompassing statements? Despite all who have ever lived, not even one person has really sought after God. What he is saying is fact. No doubt, billions have sought after a God, but they have not sought after the true God because none of them have any idea what to look for. This fact ties directly to Adam and Eve's sin and Satan's deception of all mankind. So thorough has his deception been that mankind has only bits and pieces of the truth, making human conceptions about God dreadfully vague. Only when God chooses to reveal himself to individuals here and there do the pieces begin falling together into the correct pattern. Then, truly seeking him becomes a likely prospect. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it teaches that continuing to upgrade one's knowledge of God is linked 
to quality and length of life. The most important thoughts the mind can entertain are thoughts of God, as they will determine the quality and direction of an individual's life. Seeking God, then, is a continuous responsibility for the converted person. This is not difficult to do, not because he is elusive, but because human minds are saturated with misconceptions. These mistaken beliefs are erased through the experiences of coming to know him. Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There was nothing vague about God to Abraham. His relationship with God was of such intimacy that he thoroughly understood his character and purpose. He knew that he could trust God to act and react within clear perimeters. Abraham added up what he knew about God and about his promise that Isaac was the promised seed, reached a conclusion, and acted. He knew God would either have to resurrect Isaac or to provide a substitute. He chose to trust the one he knew has the power and is faithful. What if, like most Americans, Abraham had just guessed based upon vague remembrances of a Sunday school class, movies, fiction works, and paranormal inspirations, we can assume that he would have worshipped the idols of his father, Terah. A right concept of God is a Christian necessity because a wrong notion of him is the very foundation, the starting point for idolatry. In brief, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. God makes this clear at Mount Sinai after making the covenant with Israel and giving them his law. In Exodus chapter 32, Aaron, confronted by the sinful pressure of his peers, became carried away and made a stupid golden calf to rescue them from their, from their perceived dilemma. Aaron and the Israelites revealed that their false concepts of God remained. God had the idol immediately destroyed. Israel sinned in attempting to determine the nature of God based on their own reasoning, and many died in a punishing demonstration of the true God's wrath at this agrarious sin. The Israelites of today are still at it. Modern Israelites are fantasizing about God. The idolater simply imagines a conception of God and then acts as though his conceptions are true. He is deceived and certainly does not know the true God as Abraham did. God seeks out those whom he desires to make the covenant. At that time, all they understand about him is in broad terms. They are then to seek him out 
to know him more precisely, those who make the new covenant with God are required to seek out intimate details regarding his nature, purpose, and character. By the way, that sin was egregious, not egregious. I apologize. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I don't know my words very well. My vocabulary is limited. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. How does God's Spirit help us to overcome? Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because of their disobedience and attitude. A spirit of sin and rebellion entered into them and separated them from God. That spirit is enmity against God. It is a poison, a spiritual disease that contaminates each individual as he adjusts to a sin-filled world and makes the same poor choices that Adam and Eve made. However, once God calls a person, if he allows God to humble him, then upon repentance he is prepared for the indwelling of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the, is the antidote for the noxious, evil spirit of sin that humanity has followed since the Garden of Eden. Our carnal spirit, mimicking the attitudes of Satan, is prideful and self-serving. But God's pure and powerful spirit can heal us and make it possible for us to keep God's laws by dissolving our proud, selfish nature. Once this process has begun, we can then begin to bear the fruits of the spirit. Yet we cannot take the indwelling of God's Spirit for granted. When David sinned with Bathsheba and conspired in the death of Uriah the Hittite, he drifted from God for several months at least, for it was not until around the time that the baby was born that the prophet Nathan shocked the king into awareness of what he had done. That was in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. In his psalm of repentance, he cries, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, verses 10 and 11, emphasize, emphasis hours throughout. He realized that his, by, his, by his neglect of seeking God daily, he had been dangerously close to losing all contact with God. Thus, he asked God to renew his spirit within him and not take it away. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul also speaks of renewing God's spirit within us. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, 
yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Speaking of the new man again in Ephesians 4, he instructs the brethren, Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. Clearly, God wants us to be in contact with him every day by his spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The church developed under the inspiration of Jesus Christ an overall concept of time management unique to church members. It has its roots in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6 urges us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Why should we seek him? Because he has the power and the willingness, if we will trust him, to give us a completely new nature, breaking the vain, frustrating, repetitious cycle. Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 adds a helpful understanding. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. This is a prophecy that Jesus partially quoted as he began his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. That's in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> These passages suggest an element of movement towards something soon to happen. Isaiah 55 verse 6 suggests we seek him urgently because the Lord is moving on and we do not if we do not seek him now it will be too late time and events within it are moving Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 is similar now is an acceptable day for those called of God if we wait the acceptable day will pass and the day of vengeance, even now moving toward us, will be here. It will be too late to avoid its destructive powers. In Solomon's complaint about time, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, God was nowhere mentioned. Events just go around and around endlessly, affecting, effectively describing Solomon's frustration. However, in the prophet Isaiah's description, God is involved in the movement of events that impact directly on his people's lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 from the Revised English Bible helps us to see the sense of urgency in a New Testament setting. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. It is, if, it is as if God were appealing to you through us. We implore you in Christ's name, be reconciled to God. Christ was innocent of sin, and yet for our sake, God made him one with human sinfulness so that in him we might be made one with the righteousness of God. Sharing in God's work, we make this appeal. Appeal. You have received the grace of God. Do not let it come to nothing. He has said, In the hour of my favor, I answered you. On the day of deliverance, I came to your aid. This is the hour of favor. This, the day of deliverance. These admonitions to seek God now, now is an acceptable time, and do not let it come to nothing, all indicate a passing, a passing opportunity. The Christian is dealing with a specific period during which events are working toward the culmination of some process, and if he does not take advantage of the present opportunity, it will never come again. The parable of the wise and foolish virgin, virgins in Matthew chapter 25, verse 6 through 13, illustrates our need to make the most of this opportunity now. This parable's major lesson is that both life and time are moving. The precise time of Christ's return is unknown. So he urges us to take advantage of the knowledge and time we already have at hand. Those who reject his advice will find their way into the kingdom blocked. Recall that 2 Corinthians is written to Christians. Paul's message is a call to strike while the iron is hot. Both Jesus and Paul remind us that our calling is rife with possibilities, so much so that we can consider each moment as big as eternity. That is how important this day of salvation is to us. The New Testament's instruction to Christian is, now is the time. Everything is in readiness for success. It is though the New Testament writers are saying, don't be like the slave who refuses when presented with freedom, or the diseased person who rejects help when offered healing. God's door is open to us, charge through it by cooperating with him.